0: Hi, Katarina. Hi,
1: Victoria. How
0: are you? I'm well. Thank you. you. Yeah, nice to hear you too. How is everything? Everything is great. I'm outside right now on the porch at the beach and it's beautiful and cold and windy and and watching the sunset. Oh, beautiful. Are you in California?
1: I am. Yes. Nice. Mm -hmm. That's nice. I just
0: set up the the oh the room looks fabulous you made it look great thank you oh, i was just <laughs> reading the paper too that's really interesting mm-hmm. okay
1: paper shared good all good <laughs> uh, yeah this month is is really busy next month i still don't have that Much planned, I have to catch up because I didn't do much last month, you know. Mm-hmm. On
0: vacation, so yeah, yeah. See. Oh, it'll fill, I, I... <laughs> it will, <laughs> yeah. Well, it
1: we since we planned this like two months ahead, around so you know, there's a delay in spots that are kind of. But we'll have a few homes. It's fine.
0: <laughs> Welcome, friends who are arriving. Hey, everyone.
1: Feel free to join us on the stage to ask questions, participate. Hope everyone's doing well in the new year.
2: Oh, shoot. I was reading what I wanted to read. <laughs> it's actually in the top. Never mind. Uh, my question's answered. It's immune system uh, that I didn't read. I seen the molecular disabling switch, and I you perked my ears up big time. But um, immune system kind of defines it a little further that I wasn't exactly looking for.
0: Well, maybe you'll be surprised and interested.
2: For sure, maybe.
0: Yeah, great. All right. Well, enjoy the talk. Thanks for coming. Well, it's really
1: important, right? There's a lot of autoimmune disease um, and other, you know, diabetes is also falls under the category of autoimmune diseases. Um, Even in cancer, it's important to know that switch uh, because cancer actively sometimes turns it off. So it has really a broad range of yeah, importance for health. Um, so will yeah. be really interesting. I was
0: I was looking at I, I didn't see reference in the two articles I'd read to autoimmune applications and that's what I, I was I mean everything is so important but I'm so curious about if that's if that's a part of this work as well or or ideas. For well,
1: or anyway. yeah, this work is to figure out the how it works like um, the you know, the immune system, molecular system, but later on it will have implications, I guess, in those fields. So, yeah, it was for sure hard enough to <laughs> to find that switch. I mean, it's, yeah, it's really great work.
0: Yeah, it's going to be
1: Yeah, welcome everyone. Uh, thanks for coming. Feel free to share the room. Our guest speaker will be here um, soon. Uh, we'll start on top of the hour. In the meantime, feel free to check out the slides, the paper. Let me also share like a general public press release. Didn't I have it? A link. So, um, Sometimes it's easier for people to understand what, like, the, the context is and the significance.
0: Oh, welcome, Hamish. So happy to see you. Yeah,
1: welcome. Can you hear us? The unmute but like the button to unmute is all the way on the bottom right. There should be a little mic. Yep. Oh. There you
3: yeah. go. Oh, good. Cool. <laughs> That's all right, Sorry, I didn't realize that button.
1: How um, are you? Everything good?
3: I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. How's the connection? Sounds all right. Yeah,
1: I can hear you well. Can you hear as well?
3: Yeah, that I can hear fine. Yeah. yeah <laughs> yeah no no i'm good thanks um it's um yeah it's different it's uh so it's 1 p.m here almost
1: yeah and you have nice weather no
3: (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly what's it like where are you you're in new york
1: yeah but it's a relative for new york it's a very mild winter so far no snow that's good not really there were there were a few days where it got really cold the stuff was freezing, but so far, not too much,
0: yeah.
1: which is yeah, good. Right. And of course, bad in the bigger picture. I mean, Europe, same thing. My friends live in Germany and Portugal, and yeah, very yeah. mild Germany too. Almost no snow. Yeah,
3: right. yeah, we had a really long winter. Like, our winter is pretty mild, but it was like, it seemed to go on for like, way longer than normal, and... But summer finally came and it's been really good. Like we've had like thirty, thirty-five degrees for like about a week, and now it's gone kind of cold again. But that's that's our weather's pretty unpredictable.
1: Yeah, I think in Portugal, the summers are not at least in the north. The summers are not really that warm anymore. Um, like I don't know. So it's yeah. been kind of weird, but
3: yeah,
1: yeah really? definitely it was
3: to be expected it's not surprising so i, I realized I, I didn't send you like a um a bio or anything but i'm um, sorry about that
1: oh don't worry late. i'll check i checked you out no i i just went on the lab website and on it. so <laughs> <stop> it. <laughs> yeah no
3: worries yeah yeah no worries it's probably it um, yeah that's probably creepy. what i would send you <laughs> but... that's all right <laughs> nah, no worries don't worry. i think i did it to you as well so don't worry <laughs> <Good>. <laughs>
1: okay um yeah welcome everyone uh hi katie you want to come up um yeah uh welcome everyone we'll start in a few minutes uh feel free to in the meantime take out the paper and the article and the presentation and um welcome katie meet hamish
4: hello how are you
3: good thanks your accent sounds familiar
4: (laughs) as does yours um (laughs) welcome i'm really excited for your presentation
3: oh great thank you yeah thanks for having me
1: how has your uh of the year Ben. Katie okay, we haven't spoken in a few like a few weeks I think so hope all is well with you
4: yeah everything's good and how about yourself is it feels like too late to say happy new year but happy new year since we haven't spoken um, but I'm excited for these rooms to be back and chatting with you all and nerding out in science
1: yeah thanks happy new year to you too and we'll have the Chinese new year coming up. So it's this weekend, right? I'm not mistaken. So we can say happy new year.
0: <laughs> it's always great to wish happy anything at any time, you know? I don't think there's there's too much of that.
4: This is true. This is true.
0: And hi Victoria. Yeah, hello Katie. Happy new year. <laughs> Happy New Year! Back. Just like the olden days. I know. So it's together again. It's good. It's going to be a good room. We're looking forward to this, Hamish.
3: Oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. Oh, um Yeah. So, <clears throat> uh, would you like me to get started, or are you sort of waiting for?
0: Oh yeah, you can relax for yeah. for two more minutes.
3: <laughs> yeah, That's we good. we
0: start at the hour. We'll, you're good. You can just relax and and um, we'll let you know.
3: Okay, no worries. So, where's um, Katie? Where whereabouts are you situated, and Victoria?
4: I am uh, currently in like northern New South Wales, but I've been living oh, cool. um in south africa gosh for like 12 years ah right okay yeah yeah and i was at the genetics department in at stellenbosch university so i'm really excited for your presentation
3: awesome yeah yeah nice cool and victoria whereabouts are you
0: right now i'm in southern california and it's just beautiful outside it was We had we had pretty exciting rains and flooding, and uh, you know like rivers overflowing their banks and train trestles getting washed away and that. But uh, it's calm today. It's just been so windy, and now today it's it's really beautiful. Oh, nice! And I just enjoyed a fantastic sunset with just so orange, and it's great.
3: (laughs) That's amazing.
0: well I'm glad we got
1: to all have a time to chat and meet and um, I think we can start and hi Nikita welcome I haven't seen you in a while too I hope all is well hello Hello after a long time one of my favorite clubs every time Thank thank you Okay, we can get started then. Uh, welcome everyone to Science Society. And of course, a special welcome to you, Hamish. And uh, before we start, let me give um, like the audience a short introduction so they can get to know you a little bit. So um, uh, Hamish, he's a senior research fellow at the University of Melbourne in, in Victoria, Australia. And he uh, went to a Christian college, um, and then later did his bachelor with honors in biotechnology at Deakin University, and then his PhD at Monash University in parasitology, immunology, vaccine development, biochemistry, and. Um, he as i said is a senior research fellow uh, in the department of microbiology and immunology at the dorsey institute and he leads a team in the lab of professor uh, i hope i saying it right joseph uh, where he investigates how the immune system detects uh, pathogens uh, by a protein called mr1 and um He, uh, Hamish, did um, really um, advances in understanding how MR1 operates on the molecular level, and he has been recognized and supported by several grants and prestigious awards. And it's such a pleasure having you here today. And we usually start off with an interview that is led by Victoria. So, Victoria, the stage is yours. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you, Thanks. Katarina. And, and Hamish, you see, uh, even though you didn't send the bio, she has her ways. <laughs>
3: <Yes>. <laughs> so, even even yeah. my high school, you found somehow.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, she has her ways. Well done, Katarina. So now we're even more looking forward to hearing your research. And we'd also like to hear a little bit about you. So if you can, if you can share with us maybe where your passion came from and, and by that, I mean, where do you feel that your first inclination towards science or maybe just affinity towards science surfaced in your life, even as a child or.
3: Yeah, sure. Yes. So, um, I, I always loved, um, just finding out how things worked and all that. I think, um, it's probably something common to scientists. Um, and, i remember a few memories like i was really young maybe i was like four or five um actually my family lived in the u.s for a few years um and i was um there and i went i remember going to a museum and there was like all these you know animals and we were we had these science classes there um and that was just like really i just loved it every little bit of information and i got a book on evolution and looking at the pictures of all the animals that you know um were from for so long ago when the animals first left the oceans and things like that. And I've still got that book today. Um, and yeah, I think just when I got through school, um, I just loved learning about things and I, I thought I wanted to be a doctor for a long time. So it was always about, uh, like a medical doctor cause I, w- I was always interested in how the body worked. But then, um, as I got through high school, it was just more actually about biology and, um, and so I, yeah, I, I left um, high school and went to uh, university and just did a basically a straight science degree. Um, that was in, that's that, the way it works in Australia. And was sort of majored in biotechnology, but it was mostly cell biology and um, biochemistry. And yeah, I think I, I got to the end of university and realised that it everything started to synthesise. Like you learn about all these different parts, you know um like biochemistry cell biology genetics and you start to get a bit of a picture like it starts to fit together and I just love that and then I started research and yeah, I fell in love with research so yeah, that's probably a bit of a history of my love for science
0: Thank you so much that was that was really um, that was very smooth storytelling I feel like you took us along this whole this whole pathway and it was really great to hear about your early memories of going to the museum. And it it's you know, it's just very encouraging to always always share things that are important with youth, you know, like share science, share share what you love yeah. is what I'm trying to say. I'm I'm here visiting family now, um, in Southern California and we're right near I don't know if anybody knows what the, the tar pits, the LA tar pits are. It's, it's Oh yes, um, I went there. Yeah okay i was wondering where you were when you were describing these museums (laughs) Um, yeah yeah, and so you see that yeah so you've seen that
3: yeah i did but i um i went there on a trip recently oh it was like about five years ago i was in um yeah the us and i went i went there um that's near the big uh, art galleries, isn't
0: it -hmm. adjacent completely (laughs) right there yeah that's where I grew yeah. up and and so to see those to see the fossils coming out and to actually be walking walking, you know, you can reach down and touch the tar that that the the woolly mammoths and the saber toothed tigers were just they were drowned in there. But you can see it and so it's amazing that you can think I'm walking in the same in the footsteps of these creatures and And it just kind of sticks with you, you know, like, like yours did. And, and so, yeah, thank you for, for also explaining, you know, that things synthesized after you built on, built on your studies. And it's kind of like you had this science vocabulary. And then can you please, uh, you said you started research. How did you, from your beginning of your research, how did you come to the research that you will present to us today?
3: Yeah. So yeah, that's been quite a journey as well. Um, and, you know, in science, I think it's like most of us, you you can't really plan where things go. It's sort of just you fall fall into opportunities usually, or, you you know, you take opportunities. And so I did um, my honours degree, which is like a, it's in Australia, it's very different from the US, but it's a one year research focused um, end of the degree. And so I did that uh, thesis on this parasitic disease of um, salmon Um, that's when salmon are in aquaculture when they're farmed they get they often get stressed and their immune system goes down they get this disease on their gills anyway I was doing research on that and then yeah and then then I ended up just sort of working on parasites for a number of years Um, and um, I went to Edinburgh um, the UK before I did a PhD and um, and worked on a horse parasite so I jumped around and and then I did my PhD on schistosomiasis, which is a, um, also known as the blood fluke. It's one of the um, you know, most prevalent diseases in, uh, in the world, really. Like um, it causes chronic illness in people in developing countries. And, um, uh, and that's a fascinating parasite. You know, the, the life cycle is just um, crazy. Um, it goes from snails to mammals. And I actually worked on um, the, the Asian schistosomiasis um, and that's, that's in China, although it is um, reducing, I think, as um, conditions improve in the rural parts. Um, but they, so I was there um, collecting samples from buffaloes and collecting snails in the field. And, and that was, you know, um, a very exciting time. And, and then at the end of that, I think I, I always just was very interested in the fundamentals and, you know, how do molecules work in order to dictate what you see happening on the larger scale. Um, and so I, I was looking for a postdoc position and I was staying local. So I was, I did my PhD in Melbourne, Australia, and I wanted to um, stay there due to family reasons. And, um, and there's a lot of really good immunology in Melbourne. And I I mentioned before that I was interested in the medical side of science. So I thought I'd see how it went, you know, trying to get a postdoc in immunology. And I, Yeah, I went to work for um, Professor Jose Villadangos, who's um, I'm still in his lab now, as nine years later. And so, um, I I was sort of lucky to get. He advertised the project and a position, and it was it just really struck a chord with me because it was all about this protein called MR1, which I'll explain to you today. And um, and I was lucky enough to get that job so it was a bit of a sideways step into something new but i used a lot of the skills that i'd learned from parasitology like the basic lab skills and biochemistry skills yeah so i um yeah, started working and then fell in love with a new um uh, area which was this protein called mr1 so yeah and That's is a,
0: that, that, yeah. Uh, yeah sorry was I cutting you off or, or that was, no no
3: that's that's about it there.
0: yeah <laughs> yeah because we're here with MR1 today right yeah so your your pattern of your um yeah kind of a pattern of inquiry is brings us here and it's 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 interesting to hear about that path because as we listen to your research, then maybe we can think of um, you know, also reasons why you might have gone in different directions considering, considering where you've been. So at this point, I will um, pass the mic completely over to you and you can dive into your discussion and then know that we are all here at your service um, to help with questions that people may put in the chat or also friends on stage we'll have for you. And I want to welcome Dr. Shaw. It's so nice to see you and welcome Eli also to the stage. And so, Hey miss. Yeah. The mic is yours. We're all so happy and welcoming to you.
3: Yeah. Great. All right. Thanks so much. Um, okay. So I'll get started and, um, if if anyone wants to ask questions on the way, I don't mind doing that. I'm not sure if that's the, um, that's the general principle, but, um, Sorry, my little three year old's coming to ask me a question. Do you mind <laughs> I'm just giving a talk about this. No worries. Awesome. Do you mind showing mama?
5: Take your time. I always talk to mama.
3: <laughs> oh, good. I'm just talking to some people on How the called? internet.
5: I'm here. Okay, perfect.
3: Thanks. All right, I'll see you soon, okay?
0: Bye. Yeah.
4: Okay, there we were.
3: Okay. Sorry. Um, yeah, I've got a little boy called Atlas. I'm actually, I uh, yeah, maybe I should start with this letting you know that I'm, um, I'm actually the like at the moment the stay home dad for a few months, um, because, um, I, my, wife had a, a baby, uh, in May. And so now I'm looking after both. So, um, it's a real privilege. Actually, Australia has very fortunate. A lot of the, my university has really good conditions for, um, parental leave. So, um, also for fathers to take it. So my wife's been able to w- return to work. So I'm going to return to the lab in February. Um, we so... absolutely
4: <laughs> love that. Yeah. And, and no worries
3: yeah, if your child very...
4: interrupts. Um, I know what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> many of us multitasking parents do so don't worry. Yeah, exactly.
0: it's actually a really good example, you know, of real life. So please.
3: Yeah, that's um, right.
0: Yeah, you're Atlas. right. Atlas is welcome here.
2: <laughs> and, and the fact that, like, a, a wealthy country cannot have its economy collapse if they offer such benefits. Yes, equal maternity yeah. leave.
3: Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I know. And, um, I mean, yeah, it's it's one of those things that I, I sort of felt like it was almost indulgent for me to do it for a while, but then I realised that, you know, the situation that equal opportunities is never going to get better if, if it's just the mothers that have to stay home and don't get the opportunity to follow their you know dreams as well. So, um, anyway, it is, it's very. I feel very fortunate to be able to do it, um, because I spent time with my kids, but, um, I do also miss the science. So I do work a bit in the evenings, you know, I've got some students and keep in touch with them and, and all that, but anyway, oh. we'll, um, no, I don't
5: want <laughs> Uh, anyway, we'll move on. We'll, we'll get into the. Oh
3: no! <laughs> I'm, I'm just all right. You, you could also, if
0: you need to press your mute button for a second to have a little privacy, so you can do that and back whenever you can. Yeah, you. All
3: right, I'm going to mute for no, one minute. No yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, take right. take care of what you need. We're good. We're happy. We'll talk amongst ourselves.
4: Yeah. Hi, it's Katie, and just maybe it's a good opportunity to say to anyone that's listening in the audience as well. Um, I know that we've got some new people in the room. Um, Please click on the presentation that's at the top and you can follow along with us as Hamish goes through. Um, Katarina also has put in the chat um, links to the scientific studies as well. Um, If anyone has questions along the way, um, as Hamish said, he's happy to answer them. So you can pop them in the chat um, or feel free to raise your hand. There'll be time for questions and answers at the end. And, um we'll make sure that we get to you all, um but yeah, again, like really love the multitasking life. I'm sure many of you that know me when I'm with my girls too <laughs> you can hear them running around in the background and um, yeah, amazing chat about turning to leave and um you know working parents' life' because, you know that's what many of us do these days,
1: yeah, I wanted to also add there was a study in Portugal since they started that um uh, men can also take parental leave. It um, it uh, improved also the health of the relationship of the parents. Um, that's what showed the study. Since you know both know how it is to, like, participate as equal partners, and you know, educate, like, being there for the children and work. So, apparently, it's also good for the parents. So, anyways, Hamish is back. <laughs>
0: welcome
3: (laughs) yeah thanks um i don't want to make all this about you know about that but it's a very interesting and important discussion isn't it i mean but anyway my three-year-old wanted to hang out with me which is lovely but um he's um he's gone with his mum now so all good um okay so i'll get started um and um and and so essentially what i I'm going to talk. I know that you have very diverse um, talk, speakers and audience as well. Um, and so, um, what what we work on, I'm going to try and um, give you start with you know a broader description, um, but then in order to explain the paper, I'm going to go into you know the nuts and bolts of the mechanics of what's happening in the cell. And so, what we what I try and work on is understanding how um, the immune system works from essentially within inside the cell, um, because there's all these molecular processes that then drive what happens, um, at the macro scale in the body. And I've always, that's what I've, I realized once I started in this area, even though it's just working on one protein, that's what I love. So I'm going to go into those details. If at all if something's not clear, feel free to um, please stop me. So, um, yeah, I was really um, happy. That, um, Katarina asked me to present this paper so we published this towards the end of last year um, and um, it was from my first um, PhD student who's finished now and her name's is Hui Jing Lin and you can see on the first slide there that that's her photo so she was from Malaysia and joined us in the lab and um, uh, did her PhD and this is um, the paper her thesis and now she's actually a postdoc at yale which i was really um, happy for her to get that position and so um all right i'll explain what's happening um in this paper so the title is a specialized tyrosine based endocytosis signal in mr1 controls antigen presentation to mate cells um and there's the details there i think you probably get the paper but actually i'll just let you know my email address is there and i'm happy to chat to anyone if you want to contact later and i'm also on twitter there okay so broadly as um, you may know the immune system um, is very complicated um, and there's a lot of players involved and without going into all the details that i've got a diagram of the main sort of cell types that are in the mammalian immune system but this is even a simplification really and so we have like these two halves of the immune system. One is the innate system, and these are cells that respond really quickly to any sort of threat or pathogen that might break the barrier in, and get into your body. Um, and they have um, they're sort of they're termed non-specific because they don't really respond to just one strain. They often respond to a whole class of, of or pathogens, such as you know gram. Positive bacteria, certain molecules from all of those will um, stimulate those cells. And then there's, if if the pathogen can get past the innate system, then the adaptive system kicks in, um, and that is very specific and and can be much more powerful to tackle that infection. Um, although the adaptive response takes you know um, up to a week to sort of really get started, and so. In the middle of these two, there's now these other cells that have been, you know, in the past couple of decades recognised as being important, and they're called um, these innate-like lymphocytes or um, innate-like T cells. And so these are gamma-delta T cells, NKT cells, and also this other subset called mate cells, and that's what I'm um, mostly interested in. And so there's a process that adaptive um, cells, such as other the T cells, which are the main part of the adaptive response, or one major part, um, need, and that's called antigen presentation. And so whereas the innate cells can detect these molecules directly, adaptive cells actually need the antigen or these foreign molecules to be presented to them in a certain context by other cells. So that's called antigen presentation. So you can imagine one cell, I'll go to the next slide now, so on slide three, The next slide shows that, you know, um, T cells to get activated need to have the antigens presented. So the blue cell is what we call an antigen presenting cell. And at that synapse, there's an MHC molecule and it has a small fragment of a um, pathogen or a foreign um, organism within that. That's that little green blob. And the T cell has a matching T cell receptor that detects um, both the MHC molecule and that Um, foreign um, molecule there so you can see the situation's quite complicated already but this allows for a really fine-tuned instruction to the powerful t-cells in order to you know when to respond how to respond and in what way because the antigen presenting cell can provide other signals in the form of like um, soluble molecules called cytokines and other receptors that can tell the t-cell to either you know, respond to this um, foreign antigen or not respond um, or and what type of response um, to, to happen. So our lab, and particularly my lab head, um, Jose Villadangos has been working on antigen presentation for a long time. And when I joined, um, uh, no one really knew how this new MR, this new MHG molecule called MR1, it was newly recognized, how that works. So Um, I'm going to explain to you one important part of how it works today. So on the next slide, slide four, I'm going to introduce these mate cells. So um, mate cells are your most likely, um, as far as we know, your most abundant T cell that's in your body. And they're really powerful. They have very strong immune um, functions. And so the name mate um, stands for mucosal associated invariant T cells. And it's because they were first found mostly enriched in the mucosal tissues, so in the gut and the lungs. But they've actually since been found that they're pretty much everywhere in your body, even in your brain. Um, and um, they're just they're extremely uh, numerous. And um, so the invariant part refers to them. Their T cell receptor doesn't really change much, and that's really different to most of the T cells in your body, because you we all have. Um, potentially billions of types of t-cells that can respond to billions of types of um, different antigens but mate cells are very different in that they um, have the same type of t-cell receptor that recognizes the same type of antigen presented by um, the same molecule mr1 and so we think it's really important to understand how this happens so what do mate cells do well they can sense pathogens because mr1 presents these small molecules that come from bacteria, and that results in immunity. So they can, um, so for example, humans uh, or mice that lack mate cells um, generally do worse for a lot of bacterial infections. Um, and there's some humans that have had mutations that result in them not having mate cells, and um, they also um, often have uh, um, some recurrent infections. And But the other thing that mate cells do, which is really an interesting and emerging area, is that they they sense commensals and respond accordingly. So it's not just pathogens, because the antigen they recognize comes from all different types of bacteria. So they sense commensals, and then they can help repair the body. So in this diagram, this is like a mucosal layer, and you can imagine there might be a breach in that barrier. Um, where all these little green bacteria might be able to enter the tissue. So an antigen-presenting cell can capture some of the antigen and present it on MR1 and turn on the mate cells, effectively turning on the immune system because these innate cells, uh, mate cells can respond really quickly unlike other T cells that take a long time to get going. They respond really quickly and they actually recruit different T cells and they um, cause dendritic cells to mature um, and it's a real, um, it's it's like it's really kick starting the immune, sy- immune system and immune response. That's what they do. So, we are very interested in what controls their activation. How does MR1 work? So, a bit more about MR1. Without going to these chemical structures in too much detail, it's, MR1 is a really fascinating job because what it does is it actually presents these small um, vitamin related metabolites that come from bacteria. So, I'm on slide five now. Um, and so, inside bacteria, most bacteria synthesize their own riboflavin um, and as, as an essential um, uh, vitamin, and it's vitamin B2. And we don't actually synthesize it. We get it all from our diet and also from our commensal bacteria that synthesize it. And so, for organisms like bacteria and yeast as well that make riboflavin if you've done any biochemistry, you know that to synthesize a a complex molecule, there's a number of um, synthetic steps along the way. And one of the small intermediate steps um, is this molecule called 5ARU. And that combines with these other small molecules to form the actual antigen. Um, For example, the main one is called 5OPRU here. So MI1 captures that small molecule Um, within this little, what's called an antigen binding cleft, and then it um, presents it to the T-cell receptor. So no other MHG molecule presents metabolites like this. They all present peptides, um, as um, you may be aware, to conventional T-cells, like the killer CD8 T-cells, or some of them present lipids. But this is the first molecule that's ever found that captures um, bacterial metabolites, and presents it to t-cells and the the significance of this is that these metabolites only hang are very short-lived because they're very um, susceptible to um, to being degraded so if mr1 finds these metabolites around it suggests that there is a microbe and it's living and it's synthesizing riboflavin so it's essentially growing so mr1 is sort of presenting this metabolite signature of a living bacteria Um, and these are really ubiquitous, pretty much every bacteria we have, or you know, probably, I'm not sure what the number, but it's more than, say, 90% synthesized riboflavin, so it's a very common antigen. So, because MR1 is actually expressed by pretty much all of our cells, and that the antigen is very abundant, so why are mate cells not continuously activated? And... So we're trying to understand how MR1 works um, in those antigen-presenting cells. Um, And in order, and I'm on slide six, sorry. And um, in order to maybe find a way that we can manipulate mate cells, which are to remind you are your most abundant T cell. Perhaps in immunocompromised individuals or um, elderly where their immune response is not um, what it once was um, and they're susceptible to. Um, bacterial infections such as pneumonia, um, we could boost their immune response. And there's also the scope for cancer immunotherapy because maybe we could turn these abundant T cells to fight tumors. And there's some really exciting work that's been come out about that. So <clears throat> I'll explain what we found about MR1 briefly because it has a, a lot of really fascinating elements to it. And one that I think was the most interesting that we found early on was that m one as you imagine, needs to get to the cell surface to present its antigen in order for the T cell to bind and recognize that as a, as a receptor. But in fact, what people knew for a long time was that it wasn't at the cell surface at all. It was pretty much all buried inside the cell. So how does it actually get to the surface? So what we found is that normally in the healthy um, steady state, um, All MI1 is within the cell, so it's sort of, um, it's off. It can't signal to the mate cells. But during an infection, um, these bacteria will release the metabolites and they enter the cell by unknown mechanisms, but they get inside, deep inside the cell, in an area called the endoplasmic reticulum or the ER. Um, So on slide 7, you can see um, the bottom box shows that these metabolites are getting in. Um, maybe from an intracellular bacteria or from outside the cell and they load onto MR1 and so MR1's sitting there waiting just in case there's a metabolite coming around. Once it does bind, that causes a conformational change, like a change in the structure of MR1 and that rapidly traffics it to the cell surface. So the metabolites turn MR1 on essentially and MR1 is like an alarm system that signals to the mate cells that there is a... Um, a Microbe living you know, nearby. And so once it's been at the cell surface, it needs to be turned off. And so the next slide, slide eight, um, I'm just highlighting this part of the, the pathway that we realized um, <clears throat> over a few years ago that MR1, once it's at the cell surface, you know, when you expose cells in the top graph on the right, expose cells to the metabolite 5-O-P-R-U and MI1 goes up. And then if you take away 5-O-P-R-U over the next eight hours, MI1 goes back down. But no one knew how that worked. And that to us was really uh, important because it's the way that you turn off the signal to to, to stimulate mate cells. And it's not just that it goes inside to hide, but it actually goes inside and gets destroyed. So that's what that um, Western blot shows at the bottom where you've got MR1 which is um, the black blob and you can see that gradually disappears over time. So we wanted to figure out how that was happening. So this is where Hui Jing uh, Lim's PhD project um, came in. Um, So she found that MR1, we have this assay to be able to measure how fast MR1 is internalized. And that on slide nine, that's the top uh, graph um, there on, on the left and so with primary T cells, so, um, primary PBMCs from uh, human blood, different lymphocytes and uh, monocytes, you can see that MR1 is internalized constantly over four hours, but at different rates depending on the cell type. So in monocytes, it gets internalized quite rapidly. Whereas in B cells, it gets internalized quite slowly. And the same thing similar happens um, in the cell line, two different cell lines, um, the THP1 and C1R cell lines. So to start to figure out how, that, how it is being internalized, we tried different inhibitors of uh, endocytosis. Endocytosis is the mechanism for, by which surface proteins get internalized. And we found that within, with our two cell lines, if we use this inhibitor called Pitstop two, which inhibits clathrin-mediated endocytosis, which is a major pathway for proteins getting internalized, um, that really stopped the amount of mr one that gets internalized so we realized that it must be some kind of clathrin mediated endocytosis and so on slide 10 this is where we, we used a very cool technique called um, genome-wide um, CRISPR-Cas9 um, screening to try and figure out exactly which gene was responsible um, for internalizing mr one and these, these, I'm not sure if, if, if you're aware of, of this, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of CRISPR, but um, the genome-wide um, screening is such a powerful tool that, I mean, it was a bit of a long shot, but we thought we'd give it a go. And we've done a few screens now and they, um, they generally work quite well. Um, so just to explain what happens, um, it's a way to knock out every single gene in the genome and then to see in a separate cell. So you have a large pool of cells and every gene gets knocked out in a different cell. And then you can sort out the cells that have a certain phenotype or um, a certain um, yeah phenotype that you're looking for. So for us, we, would, we, we could see the MR1 slowly went down over time. Um, and so we thought we'll knock out every gene in the, in the pool of cells and then we'll isolate the cells that still have high MR1, so they don't behave normally because normal cells will drop off MR1 over time. But we'll isolate the cells in that pool that can't internalise MR1 anymore. And and then we'll find out what the knockout is in that cell because that should be the the protein coming from the gene that was knocked out is responsible for probably internalising or degrading MR1. So when we did that, we found one hit, which is um, normally with these screens, you find a few hits, but that can also mean that it's a bit confusing to know which one is is the main, is the one um, that is actually mediating the effect. But we found this one really strong hit, it's called AP2A1. And this gene uh, was enriched in all of our, uh, almost all of our repeats, our technical repeats. And with these screens, you have six different guide RNAs, so you can knock out the gene potentially six different ways. And almost all of those as well, um, it was enriched in the MR1 high cells. So that suggests that that particular knockout is mediating, is stopping MR1 being internalised. So we were quite lucky to get that, but then I'm not sure if it's luck. I just think that these screens are, are, you know, amazing. Um, So we, I'll just explain to you what AP2A1 is. So it's part of um, a complex, a protein complex called AP2. And it's a um, it's a clathrin adaptive um, complex. So automatically we, we thought, okay, this has got to be it. And if you look, um, so this is slide 11. If you look on the diagram on the right, you've got um, uh, the, the plasma membrane there in gray and there's the receptors in black on the cell surface and you could just say that's like MR1. And what AP2 does is bind to part of the intracellular domain and then clathrin binds to AP2. And then that enables essentially the recruitment of that receptor into these um, vesicles that form. And so um, these vesicles then um, are endocytosed um, into the cell and then uh, um, the clathrin and AP2 um, get removed from that and then um, that's just the way that AP2 selectively captures um, proteins to be uh, internalized in endosomes. so there's four different subunits of AP2 and one of them is called AP2A1 so it seemed from our screen that when you knocked out AP2A1 MR1 wasn't um, internalized um, efficiently anymore so we thought we were onto um, something pretty interesting so uh we knocked out ap2a1 um in two different ways in our cell line that we often use so just to show you on the top left here's that you know um, two knockouts They have um, ap2a1 is in the two control wild type cell lines but you can't see the protein anymore in the two knockouts and then we use these to study how how these knockouts affected mr1 and um so on the top graph on the right this is slide 12 um, you can see that um, that in our knockout cell lines which is the blue line the MR1 goes up at a much faster rate um, and then is slowly internalized so these cells have a higher MR1 surface expression and it suggests that it's not being internalized and degraded and so when we internal we measured the internalization rate at the bottom left graph you can see the. Uh, Again, the AP2 knockout cells have a much lower rate of internalization than wild-type cells. Um, and there's another protein called transferrin receptor, which is all of our cells have that. Um, and that is what helps our cells take in iron. And the transferrin receptor, um, which is a, that's a known um, cargo for AP2. So AP2 binds to the cytoplasmic domain of transferrin receptor and internalizes it. That's like a control, so we could say with our knockouts that yeah, it was still it was also infecting internalization of transferrin receptor. And we also found that it was quite interesting. There's been a bit of debate in the literature that because um, once MR1 gets internalized, a little bit can be recycled, which means that once it's been pulled inside the cell, it can also be sent back out. While tr- other proteins like transferrin receptor get recycled to a really high degree mr one, there's only a tiny bit that comes back out. Um, and there was always a bit of a debate in the literature, just, you know, whether that is actually important for mr one, um, signaling to mate cells or not, <clears throat> and I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, however, we found that when you knock out AP two, a one, you, d- you also decrease the recycling to like by about 70%. So we wondered if MR1, you know, this suggests MR1 probably is a cargo that AP2 binds to and AP2 is there to sort of turn off MR1 signals. So that we thought this is, you know, the next um, part of the MR1 story that we'd like to probe. And so it's really well known what type of proteins that AP2 binds to. And the first, uh, on slide 13, the first uh, type of protein that it binds to is proteins that have this motif called a tyrosine based motif which is the y for tyrosine xx for any amino acids and then a fire residue and i'll get into that um, in the next slide and there's other types of motifs um, which is in yellow that binds to but mr one did have something that looked a bit like that tyrosine based motif so on slide 14 what we did was we looked to see if there was any um, of these tyrosine based motifs. And what we found was that pretty much, it was 80% of all mammalian's MR1 sequences have a conserved tyrosine residue. Um, and, the, and they also have a conserved proline, but at that third position after the tyrosine, they do not really have what what would be a canonical fire residue, which is that, um, that Greek fire symbol, um, because that fire is usually, Um, one of these five hydrophobic amino acids, so valine, isoleucine, leucine, methionine, phenylalanine. So normally one of these residues would be found in that fire position, but mr one has this really conserved threonine residue, so we thought that was um, a bit unusual, So, but we considered that it could have um, a tyrosine that's needed to bind to the AP2 protein, Um, but it the, the, it lacks that, that uh, fire residue, so perhaps it's sort of like a non-canonical uh, motif. So we wanted to um, investigate that. So as I said, that the, the tyrosine-based motif in MR1, while being a little bit unusual, but it was very highly conserved. So look, at, I'm just showing you some interesting animals, uh, as well as our um, standard Australian uh, marsupials like the wombat. Um, but it's also conserved in the donkey and the blue whale. So um just to give you an idea of how conserved it is and mr one is one of the is a very highly conserved protein as well so we went ahead and made some mutants of these residues in in that motif to see which one is important for internalization and um here's a bit of a schematic someone slides slide 16 uh on a schematic of the mr1 tails and you can see that um so we made uh, we we firstly concentrated on the residues around that that motif so we made a mutant called y313a so we converted the tyrosine to an alanine um and then we also converted the tyrosine to a phenylalanine which is f and i've shown the side chain structures there so you can see the phenylalanine is very similar to the um, tyrosine um motif but the the alanine basically it lacks that aromatic ring and then we made a series of other mutants, including cutting off the tail completely. And the very last mutant we, we made was to add a GFP protein onto the end because we already had that. We actually used that um, to image M O one by microscopy. So just looking at M O one internalization and the graph on the top right, there was only really one, uh, aside from GFP, it was that uh, Y3N3A mutant. So when we made that mutant, it significantly decreased the amount of MO1 that was internalized. So it suggests that that's really important for interacting with AP2. And we, we hypothesize that's probably the case anyway. Um, and so also at the very end of the graph, when we add the GFP, that seems to interfere as well. And that's probably blocking the proteins from binding to the MO1 tail. So just to show you on the bottom, If um, if you remember earlier, I showed that when we knocked out AP2, A1, that reduced the internalization of MR1. And on the right, you see a very similar thing when we just make that single mutation in MR1. So we convert that tyrosine to an alanine. So it seems like MR1 has a very conserved tyrosine. It's essential for internalization, and that's probably dependent on binding to AP2. So we tried many different ways to see if um mr1 and ap2 actually interact um and if you work at all in cell biology or biochemistry you know this is something very standard and reviewers will always ask for it if you suggest that two proteins interact then um, they want to see it so it turns out it's very hard to do because uh, ap2 interaction with other proteins is a very quick and like transient um, process um, but we ended up, um, using a method called, which is a microscopy method. So I'm on slide 17 now, sorry. Um, and this is called the proximity ligation assay. And so, uh, what the way this works is that when two proteins, <clears throat> if you look at the little diagram, the cartoon on the top left, <clears throat> if MR1 and AP2 proteins are at very close proximity, um, in, within the cell then the two antibodies against each of those proteins will be very close together. And then you get the proximity ligation assay spot, which is a spot of fluorescence occurring. So if you look at the black or dark microscopy images, at the top row, each of those little white spots inside is a point of interaction between the two proteins. And so we tried different conditions. And when we used um, healer cells that overexpressed ML1 um, we didn't see many spots, but only we saw more spots when we added the fluorescent, sorry, when we added the MR1 ligand, which is in the very last um, column of both the graph and the microscopy images. So I realized I didn't really um, mark that very well. And so we it suggested the MR1 and AP2 were interacting just when the cells were exposed to the ligand, sorry, the, the metabolite. <clears throat> and we used PLA with two different types of antibodies at different subunits of AP2 and the same thing happened. So it suggested that MR1 doesn't actually interact with AP2 normally, but when the, when that metabolite sends mi one to the plasma membrane, the cell surface, then you actually do see the interaction um, with AP2. And that makes sense because AP2 is only, really act, is only active at the plasma membrane. That seemed to suggest to us that it is interacting um and uh we then were able to show that when you mutate that tyrosine um the amounts of pla spots uh also reduces significantly um so that's looking at the gray compared to the the purple dots there so again that suggests that um, even though in that tyrosine mutant there's there's actually more mr1 present in the plasma membrane but when you don't have that tyrosine um, you don't get the interaction with P- with the um, AP2 complex. So we we're really able to show that MR1 um, interacts with AP2, and it's very dependent on having that that one tiny amino acid, that um, tyrosine. Okay, so um, we found. Uh, um, maybe we won't go into this too much detail, but we found that MR1 uh, that cells that lack AP2 um, have not only do they have more mr1 surface expression but they present antigen for a longer time um, using um, these chemically modified mr1 metabolites and so on slide 20 um, we, uh, we we found that yeah the same thing occurred when we used cells that were the antigen presenting cell in blue and we could stimulate this mate cell it's like a mate cell line uh, and um, when we knocked out AP2A1, those cells sort of had unregulated um, stimulation. So for a longer time, when they were just exposed to the metabolite antigen for a short time, they would continue okay. to present MR1 antigen to stimulate the T cells. So they suggest that having AP2, you know, in the cell is important in order to turn off the um, stimulation of that really abundant T cell. And so... I. I alluded to the point earlier on that <clears throat> that um, some labs had considered that the recycling of MR1, so I've highlighted, so on slide 21, I've highlighted in red here part of the um, the schematic where MR1 is at the cell surface, can be internalised, but then it can be pushed back outside, so that's called recycling. And some labs think that that's important because <clears throat> it could be internalised to a part of the cell where some Bacteria might be living, and so and that does make a lot of sense because the bacteria are going to make the antigen. So maybe MR1 can head there, capture some antigen, and then return to the cell surface. But no one really knew whether was that really important for MR1 presenting or not because we'd previously found that most of the antigens um, bind to MR1 when it's inside the endoplasmic reticulum. So, but the the very difficult aspects to separate because usually when you affect one thing in the cell you affect everything else as well so this is one of the caveats of doing sort of cell biology assays so but we found this was actually the unique um, opportunity because when we knocked out ap2a1 the recycling of mr1 was reduced by around 70 percent. so even though mr1 was still able to load antigen er and head to the surface and present um, those molecules weren't really recycling very efficiently. And we think this is because MR1, sorry, AP2 isn't there to send it to the right um, location. So with this model in mind, we thought, well, now we can actually test is recycling important or not? So what we did is we infected our antigen presenting cell with three different types of intracellular bacteria. And so we used Salmonella, um, Shigella and Burkholderia. Um, so this is on slide 22 and this graph shows the amount of activation that we saw in those mate cells and on the and we so we used wild type cells which is the white bar the controls um, the ap2a1 knockouts in blue and the mi1 knockouts in red so basically the mi1 knockouts don't really stimulate the mate cells those cells don't get stimulated um, whereas controls and the AP2A1 knockouts were equal at their ability to stimulate mate cells. So this really strongly suggested that if cells can't recycle MR1, it didn't really matter for being able to present the intracellular antigen. Um, So it meant that recycling is probably dispensable. It's not important for being able to stimulate mate cells. That's a bit of an aside. It doesn't really explain a lot about um, that. You know, It's more just an... Uh, interesting part of MR1 and sort of settled a, a dispute for a long time in my mind, anyway. All right, so um, sort of getting towards the end, um, we um, we wanted to figure out why does MR1 in its motif have this um, this threonine in the position that other proteins have a valine, so yeah, often a valine or this um, five residue. Cause threonine is not hydrophobic at all, but the valine and all these other fire residues are these hydrophobic residues. So what we decided to do was to simply mutate that threonine to become a valine and then see what happened. And we also, um, did a, a similar, um, mutation. Well, we, we swapped the tail of another MHC protein called CD1D that has a canonical, uh, motif. Um, and then we all, we just swap that tail onto MR1 to see what happened as well. Um, but essentially they both have the valine in the position that you would say an AP two protein is recognized by. So on slide 24, um, we can sort of just go through this data pretty quickly, but in a, when we made these two mutations, you can see that MR1 is now increased, it's internalized much more rapidly and um, it's also recycled much faster. So this is really opposite to what we saw when we mutated the tyrosine. When we, when we mutated the tyrosine, MR1 was internalized and recycled much lower, but now when we um, make the mut- motif look like a canonical AP2 um, sequence, now the internalization and recycling has is, is gone up really high. And it was interesting that even though the these mutant MR1s were recycled much faster and, um, but that didn't help at all for MR1 presentation. In fact, the presentation was decreased. But this is also the opposite to what we saw with the tyrosine mutant. And on slide 25, um, we did a really classic biochemistry experiment that um, it's perhaps sort of fallen out of favor because it uses radioactivity um, radioactive amino acids um, so you have to be careful wear double gloves and, and all that um, but it's a way to be able to measure how long proteins survive in the cell and there's, re- there's really no no perfect substitute for it but so we still use this technique and what we found was that um, you don't have to know too much about how this works but on the top um, top uh, plot and the top square um, you can see the MR1 at the end, of the very last lane of this gel, there's a bit of MR1 left. From six hours to 24, it does drop off. So it's being degraded a little bit. In the second box, the tyrosine mutant Y303A is um, is really prolonged. So you see a lot of more MR1 at that 24 hour time point. Whereas if we look, mutate the, the threonine, um, it's pretty much all disappeared. So this shows that not only is it uh, MR1 with these mutants, it's um, internalisation being modified, but it's also how long it survives for. So we think these two processes are um, interconnected. So going on to slide twenty six. So just to summarise, what what we think is going on is that Mo one seems to have this really Goldilocks um, motif, where it's you know not too hot and not too cold. Um, so. The um, the cold version is the tyrosine mutant, so that tyrosine is really enabling the um, the interaction with AP2 and essential for that. So if you mutate that, you get reduced endocytosis and it gets degraded really slowly. But then MI1 doesn't have that that five valine residue. So if you put a valine residue there, then suddenly endocytosis is increased really rapidly and degraded very fast. So MI1 we think has evolved to have an interaction with AP2, but not too much interaction, just just enough. That's why we think I was thinking of the Goldilocks um, porridge. So just to summarise, so we think that this interaction um, is, you know, is really governing what's happening to mate cells, and we think this is how it's how mate cells are not always. Um, activated and they're not always constantly secreting inflammatory cytokines because mr one is controlled itself um, and that's in the residues in its tail and by what mr one rec- sorry ap2 recognizes. So that's a bit of a whirlwind tour of one part of mr one and um, perhaps you're not a cell biologists but um, I hope you can sort of appreciate that all all of our processes in our body you know are, are governed by these molecular interactions, um, many of which we just don't know about yet. So this is one, the MR1, which controls your most abundant T cell in your body. Um, So there's a very last slide of acknowledgments and I won't go through them all, but um, there's a lot of funding and people that I would thank, particularly my lab head, Jose and Hui Jing, who did um, a lot of this work. And it was great um, to work with Hui Jing for my first PhD student and um, she's now um, doctor. So yeah. Thanks a lot. I think um, that's it. I'm happy to take any questions.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Hamish. And please tell from us congratulations and good luck for the future uh, to your uh, previous students. Um, uh, yeah, this is really a beautiful work. And this mechanism, I think, you know, or let me just ask, do you think, so, first of all, do you think that, for example, in disease models um there would be maybe um some sort of mechanisms that a p two and m r one interact too much uh to have kind of a chronic inflammation um state uh do you do you think you know that yeah. would be the case yep yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah, I think it's um, definitely possible. Um, we don't really know much yet, and this is probably the limitations of how far we've gone so far, so we're still trying to figure out now, but I did show you earlier on that some cell types can, um, in humans, like in from human blood, um, some cells seem to internalise MR1 much more quickly than others, and so that suggests that there is some control over MR1 internalisation, but we haven't really uncovered that yet. But... One thing that's known is that um, proteins like MR1 on that tyrosine residue, that can be actually modified itself, like, um, say, phosphorylated, and that prevents AB2 from binding. So we haven't actually found that MR1 tyrosine is um, phosphorylated, but that could be, if that happens or something like that, any modification could be sort of, um, that occurs from another protein, could be modifying how much MR1 is internalized um but that could yeah that's
1: interesting
3: yeah
1: oh no let's go ahead (laughs) sorry
3: no no that's that's it yeah
1: yeah i think it's so interesting because you know when i read your paper um i kind of theorized like years ago that like diseases later on like parkinson and you know all these different um diseases that come later on and and some people um that maybe there is a tendency in those humans like to have an like an immune system that just doesn't stop or stops um doesn't really stop reacting like there's always a fire somewhere a fire signal going on And, and when i read this i thought it would be really cool in the future I mean, if we could detect, you know, that's because this mechanism is on for too long and maybe we could predict and like downregulate it in those people so they won't get Parkinson's or, you know, in the ideal world in the future. (laughs) Your discovery would lead to, okay, we can predict this. So let's give them something that this mechanism is not all on all the time and they won't get, I don't know, diabetes and, and, and stuff like that.
3: Yeah, exactly. I, I think you're right. And I mean, I'm not sure whether this this is involved, but there has been, MI1 is really conserved between, in within the human population and even be, between mammals, but there is some mutations in MI1 itself too. And um, I haven't looked yet to see whether there's any that are in the tail in this region that I was talking about, but, that could also define, you know, overreaction of mate cells or underreaction. Um, but it, I think it's just important to know these processes because, you know, how would we interpret say gene, um, uh, mutations without understanding how the mechanics work.
1: Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And I'll pass the mic on to the next person. Um, so in PTR order on my screen is, um, Thank think Katie, Eli, Dr. Shah, Denise, Les, just go ahead and, and mic and thank you.
6: Yeah, thank you so much, Hamish, for your wonderful research. And I have two questions. Uh, my first question is about the using of the MR1 uh, for the CAR T cell. And uh, as you know that uh, we are using for the monoclonal tropy and the cancer treatment for the CAR T. And another question that raised about your presentation because you mentioned about the uh, different ligand related with the mr1 which it can be included fully acid and b12 relevancy my question is did you find any relationship between eosinophil and condition related with the eosinophil and uh, mr1 uh, this is two questions and also about the APC. Uh, do you think that the previous exposure to the viruses can be related with the expression of the MR1 or
5: not? Thank you.
3: Yeah, thanks for the questions. Yeah, so um, the first question about like, the CAR T cell, um, I'm not really um, up to date on, on this. I know that there is people working on actually um, like CAR, Mate cells, um, so, um, but I'm, I'm, I, I believe that's just because the, the good thing is that mate cells are conserved between humans, and um, they can be transferred that way and expanded. Um, was there something specific about that that you had in mind? Um,
6: yes, there is. This, there is some research out there about the carti cell uh, targeting mesothelia and uh, also they are using because we are, when you're talking about the t-cells specifically no matter is a mucus related or not they can have a use in a corticel trophy
3: yeah yeah that's right yeah so i'm not sure how mr1 um uh, fits into it as well because one of the things that mi one is generally not at the cell surface um to react um but um yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm not sure if, if, how far people have got with mate car cells, um, car mates, but I know, um, that that's you yeah, mean non-canonical
6: there. signaling. You are mostly focusing on the canonical or non-canonical signaling.
3: of oh, MR1. Yes. Um, yeah, with essentially just understanding, I guess, how MR1, um, how MR1 signals to the mate cells, but by, you know, I guess for therapeutics, we were sort of thinking that by understanding how it works and how it gets turned off, we might be able to interrupt that with, say, small molecules that block this interaction and and then cause the T cell to become activated even more. Yeah. Um, and so you're asking about eosinophils as well? Um, yes, because I, you
6: talk about the B2, and I was wondering about the folic acid ligand related to MR1. And how they are related, or you think they might be related, based upon the cytokines activation or not?
3: Yeah, right. So, I mean, I know we haven't. We think that eosinophils don't express mr one at all, which is um, that's in mice anyway. That's a little bit, um, um, but the ligands themselves. Um, there's there's some data coming out that M I one can present these small M I one these antigens from various different metabolite um, and metabolic pathways but the main ones come from bacteria Um, But we have I haven't found any data yet that's um, about like eosinophils being involved specifically or any pathways from eosinophils but it's a really unknown area because it was only discovered like ten years ago that mr1 binds metabolites at all so There's a lot, there's several labs around the world. um, And even there's a biotech company now looking at MR1 presenting antigens from um, tumor cells. Um, But there's just, yeah, a lot unknown. So any of the other innate like T cells could have their own type of metabolite pathways that enhance MR1 as well. Like, but we just don't know that yet. That's an interesting, yeah, question. So another question you asked about the antigen presenting cells and, viral exposure and how that might impact mr one
6: yes
3: um, is that, specifically
6: that... about the apc and you mm-hmm. mentioned about bacteria my question was related yes. to viral virus and i was wondering maybe you have further explanation
3: yeah i think yeah i think that's really interesting because um one of the things early on was that they uh, going back in the history but they didn't know early scientists didn't know what MR1 was presenting. Um, but they quickly realized that mate cells were never activated from a virus infection, but they were only activated from bacterial infections. So, um, and then later on they figured out that it was, um, some, some of my colleagues actually figured out that it was these metabolites that only come from bacteria. So not from viruses. But I think what you're asking is really interesting because, um, You know, obviously, people that have a viral infection, they often get secondary infections later on and they can be bacterial. So we've wondered ourselves whether MR1 is um, after a viral infection, there's some, you know, immune training going on or within the APCs that's preventing MR1 from um, functioning properly. And, yeah, we, we have actually found various inflammatory conditions in mice actually do decrease the MR1 presentation ability of these APCs, antigen presenting cells. I haven't actually looked at viral infections yet, though. That's um, something we're interested to do. I guess this is what we're doing now. We're looking um, more at the in vivo role of MR1 antigen presentation and, and also what affects that. So, yeah, this is exactly what we're looking at. But I'll have to do the viral infection and get back to you.
6: You mentioned exactly whatever I, I mean, and thank you so much for your answer, and I'll pass the mic to the next person.
3: No worries, thanks. thanks.
1: Yeah, Katie, Eli, Denise, Les, please go ahead, and ask your question.
5: Hi, Amish, that was a great presentation. I really appreciate the detail. Um, I had three questions, one, because i've never done this how exactly is gfp green green fluorescent protein added to um, a sample i get that it starts with a vial but then what
3: yeah yeah that's a good question so um what we do is we actually um do some like cloning like molecular cloning where you you sort of you know make up a chimeric gene sequence So, so you have mr1 Normally at the end of the MR1 gene, there's a stop code on. So it means that the protein uh, finishes. But what you can do is, um, is kind of cut and paste and put the GFP sequence directly after. So you take off the stop code on the gene and you have um, the, the sequence for the green fluorescent protein. Yeah, and then um, that means that uh, in those cells, so then you um, ask that you get those cells to express that gene and they'll make mr one and just continue making GFP. And then it, you know, sort of miraculously folds in the correctly in the cell. And so you have the MR1 protein in the membrane with the GFP, um, hanging off the end. So it's all one big protein.
5: So how long does that take? And is it like, what is the equipment involved? I'm just really curious about this.
3: Yeah, no, it's no worries. Um, it's a good question because, you know, there's probably a lot of things that I've said that maybe (laughs) didn't make sense because if you're in a very different area. Um, so, but basically, um, the process might take like, uh, uh maybe like a month or something, um, or a few weeks to, to get going because you have to, um, do various techniques like, um, PCR. So, um, polymerase chain reaction. Um, and they're very, um, classics now classic molecular biology techniques where you, um, stitch the two genes together and then you put it into a, a vector, which is like a plasmid, a, a circular piece of DNA. And then you can manipulate these viruses to um, inject that DNA into the cell that you're interested in. So a cell line that you're growing in culture. And then the gene will get inserted into the cell. So we really, this is, you know, you know when they say standing on the shoulders of giants, like these techniques have, countless scientists have done every step. and optimized and made these work, you know, it's a mystery to me almost how it works, but we can do it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool.
5: That's for that explanation that definitely clears up some questions I have. Um, <laughs> you had mentioned if I didn't hear you wrong, AP two timing is fleeting and that's why it's difficult <laughs> to prove this. How, how
3: fleeting is that? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> Uh, let me see, I've got the, basically what, what happens is that ML, well, endocytosis itself, which is a process of, you know, parts of the surface of the cell, the plasma membrane um, forming these little pits and then they get pinched off into a little bubble kind of thing. And then that gets taken inside the cell. So That's called endocytosis. Um, and that happens on the in the, in the seconds like say 5 to 10 seconds but what AP2 does is even faster than that so it binds to the proteins and then sort of collects them together into these pits because um, uh, it's the clathrin protein that binds to AP2 makes it this scaffold I think of like a golf ball forming with like these scaffolds around it um, that sort of make it into a pit and then it becomes a ball another protein comes and pinches it off so it's a, a ball that floats off from the membrane inside the cell so that happens over seconds and the ap2 interaction i i can't tell you how, to, how fast it is it, it it may be the data's out there i'm just not I'm not sure but i'd say it must be less than you know a couple of seconds so it's sort of ap 2s binding collecting proteins together sending them into these pits and then once the pit becomes an actual like endosome of a, a ball inside the cell, the AP2 dissociates. It seems to happen very quickly.
5: Well, that would, yeah. I mean, the order of seconds,
3: you have to be at the
5: right place at the right time with the right
3: equipment. Yeah, exactly. That's all right.
5: <laughs> yeah. And then the last question is how, um, you know, have you considered how your findings, for this work apply to COVID? Is there, I'm sure there is some application. I'm just curious if you've considered it.
3: Yeah. So um, we don't typically think of MR1 um, being really involved in viral infections because MR1 presents these bacterial metabolites, but there has been some work to show that Especially uh, in mouse models of influenza, <clears throat> I know it's very different to COVID, but and it's a it's a viral infection, and mate cells are, are actually important part of the immune response to viruses, and that was a bit of a surprise because MR1 doesn't present any antigens from um, from viruses, um, but it does show that mate cells, their role in the immune system is probably more um, is you know more important in other aspects like viral infections that we just don't know yet, but. mate cells are so abundant that you can't really ignore them so there's been uh data to show that you know um, mate cells are almost like a canary in the in the mining tunnels where you know as soon as something starts to go wrong with the canary you know there's a problem and same with mate cells so a lot of diseases um autoimmunity diabetes covert mate cells um start to their numbers drop um in in these patients so there's definitely something happening to mate cells but going back to your question of, you know, is what we found, how does that relate to COVID? The only thoughts that I've had is that I think, um, um, and this is going back to a previous question as well, um, is that perhaps after a viral infection, if mi one itself is impacted and not able to stimulate these um, mate cells very well, which we think is probably the case um, from other data, then, that means that patient, people that have had COVID or a viral infection could be, you know, at risk of getting um, lung pneumonia or um, some other viral infections because the MR1 is not working properly and mate cells themselves are also, um, they get uh, reduced in numbers. So it could be, so yes, I'm sure, I think everything does come back to COVID at the moment for us, but it um, it could be something. and. And if we can manipulate MR1, it could be a way to also boost the numbers of mate cells back up, because as, as I said, they do drop it after COVID or during COVID um, and they get activated. But with MR1, uh, if we could you know, boost the MR1 presentation on our cells, maybe we could also return the, the mate cell numbers to a normal level quicker than what normally happens.
2: So I, I actually uh, searched this question during your talk. I, I you know, I uh, nearly went, there was a time I wanted to go into immunology and I, I've still always uh, followed uh, it to some degree. Uh, so mate yeah. cells are, are new to me. So, so this is really interesting. Um, but I, uh, on this specific uh, topic, there was a paper from, la- from 2021, uh, Isabelle Nell at uh, L'Université de Paris um, I'll, I'll read the specific uh, uh, sentence that caught my attention um, on, on SARS-CoV-2. Um, yeah. We and other groups recently unveiled alterations uh, of mate cells during SARS-CoV-2 infection. Blood mate cells were significantly reduced in frequency while a highly activated, high CD69, CD56, CD uh, interferon gamma, and GZB expression and those parameters were linked with pulmonary function loss global inflammation levels and fatal outcome of severe patients Um, elsewhere oh yeah here mate cell frequency was increased in infected lungs and also displayed higher levels of cd69 gzb uh, and pd1 compared to blood mate cells now pd1 program uh, death receptor uh, protein um, that is associated Elevation of that is associated with long COVID.
3: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So basically, um, what, what's happening, <clears throat> what they're describing is that you know, mate cells are decreasing in the blood, but they're probably they you know, they're going to the lung because that's the site of inflammation, infection, and um, so they're becoming activated. So they're expressing all those markers. Um, yeah, I think that's um, yeah, that's really interesting. That they, they're probably. Mate cells are being taken out of the blood, sending, you know, going to the lung and potentially causing um, further damage. Um, although, you know, it's, <clears throat> I'm not sure if it's like causative or cor- correlation because mate cells, like I said a bit of a, a canary, they, they do, they get activated, you know, very quickly they can often be activated even without MR1. So that's probably what's happening. So even just some inflammation that's causing cytokines to be produced, um, can cause mate cells to become activated and they secrete these inflammatory cytokines like interferon gamma. That was, that you mentioned. And yeah, that, that's causing potentially further damage. So and maybe so, in this so case, the title of weird. yeah, so,
2: sorry, go you... ahead.
3: Oh, I think, um, you know, if we were going to try and manipulate MR1, maybe we'd actually, in the lungs, try and turn it off in case MR1 is actually further exacerbating the, the, this inflammatory mate cell response.
2: So uh, the title yeah. of the article is uh, Mate Cells, Guardians of Skin and Mucosa? mark. Um, they, like in the same paragraph that they talk about SARS-CoV-2, they also talk about influenza A virus and their they note that uh mr1 uh double negative uh um cells are associated with worse outcomes
3: okay yeah i'm not sure i'll put the
2: link to to this paper in in the room chat
3: for you yeah thanks yeah i I do know that one yeah it's a yeah good review yeah yeah pop it in the in the chat that will be good thanks
5: that was all the questions I had. Who else would like to ask questions?
2: So uh, actually I did have a question. You you had the um the slide with the uh the various bacterial pathogens. Um do you know if uh like during natural bacterial infections uh they wind up uh inside mate cells and are perhaps mate cells kind of a trap?
3: Mm. Yeah. Good question. Uh, um, I'm not aware of studies that have found them residing in mate cells. Um, um but you know, they certainly could, I, I mean, a lot of bacteria, a lot of bacteria pathogens that want to get inside cells, they usually get into either phagocytes, um, like macrophages because they're, they're constantly eating bacteria anyway and say like tuberculosis and, um, some pathogens like to get in there and and they they end up making the macrophage their home i'm not sure about t-cells though although look i'm sure there is a pathogen that gets in but a mate cell is like just another t-cell but it does have important differences um but you know i'm sure that there's some bacteria we haven't found any but i'm sure there's some that can manipulate mate cells so maybe they boost they increase the activation or they decrease um, and they, they don't seem to, they don't seem to be bothered by them, but for example, like tuberculosis, the bacteria that causes that mycobacteria, um, that does seem to um, be susceptible to mate cell activity. So they um, the MR1 does present antigen from those and can stimulate mate cells. And, um, there's various human data to show that that's, that's important in the immune response. And mouse um, daughter as well. And and also, I'm wondering,
2: uh, you know, since you brought up the difference between commensal and, and uh, pathogenic bac- bacteria, um, is there a, a difference between commensal and uh, uh, pathogenic bacteria in terms of? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of like the the, the soil microbiome, where where uh, uh, desirable uh, organisms get stuff from plants in exchange for the things they do for plants and uh, perhaps whether they are mm-hmm. getting the B vitamins so that they don't uh, metabolism, meta- metabolize uh, them on their own. And uh, maybe that's, that's a way that, that uh, uh, they don't induce uh, a response because they uh, have less of the metabolites
3: yeah so it's something that really fascinates me and i'm there's something that i'd love to understand um and i guess the way one important thing to think about is that with these t cells including mate cells you know as i just said at the beginning is that they they need to be presented the antigen in in um by another cell with a protein like mr1 so that allows this uh, you know, a context or another story to be told at the same time. So it has this really good layer of regulation. So why that's important is because, um, some labs, um, and I'm thinking, um, there's uh, Yasmin Belkade at her lab. I know that she's shown a lot that the microbiota can influence immune cells. Um, and, but it's not, what people normally think of in immunity during inflammation. It's like in the absence of inflammation. So antigen presentation can can occur and it does certain things um, uh, to the immune response and, and the tissues that isn't really a bad thing. So, for example, um, what I think is important is that, you know, commensal bacteria, I don't think it's a bad thing that they have these antigens because if there's no inflammation in that tissue, say on the skin, then what happens is the MI1 probably presents their antigens, but there's no other inflammatory cytokines or signals going on. So the mate cells probably just say, okay, I'm detecting some MI1 here. Um, I'm just going to proliferate a little bit. I'm just going to sit in these tissues just in case something happens in the future. So I don't think there's really probably a difference as far as I know between commensals and pathogenic bacteria um in their antigens they produce um like like the mi1 antigens the metabolites it's just the context that happens so probably things like um a lot of tissue damage or maybe excessive amounts of the antigen because pathogenic bacteria are trying to multiply much more rapidly Um, maybe these signals suddenly swing from a sort of normal healthy antigen presentation mate cell activation response to something that now makes are thinking okay this is actually starting to look bad now we'll start to um, start to not just proliferate but we're actually going to start secreting cytokines and kickstart the immune response does that sort of answer your question
2: uh yeah very much so thanks
3: yeah no worries i think it's a this is what i really find fascinating you know we don't know yet but there's all these other clues from other fields of science sort of suggesting that it's all about the context from which the antigens are presented.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, does anyone has any more questions? Um, I think last he left, um, but, um, let me check the chat so far um so far i think in the chat please uh raise your hand if you have any more questions and uh yeah if you have follow-up questions anyone please go ahead um so does the next step um you're doing in the lab now um or it will do <laughs> when you go back what are you planning to do um next
3: in this yeah yeah so um we're looking a little bit further. I've sort of got two main um, areas that um, we're pursuing in our team. So one is continuing this sort of cell biology because um, we think there's more to the story of the degradation of MR1, like how it, once it's internalised, there seems we know that it's degraded and and how that's happening. Is is that specific or not? Um, And also, um, MR1, the, the antigens for MR1 get inside the cell somehow, and we don't really know, that's not well described. So we're, we're trying to figure that out now, the pathway that these antigens metabolites get imported into cells uh, in order to send them onto MR1. That's a that's actually a very unusual process. Um, the MR1 is deep inside the cell, but it's actually sensing something from outside the cell, and so we don't know that how, how that happens. Um, and so that's something we're pursuing as well um however the other part that i'm looking at is it's a very basic question but you know which cells actually express the most mr1 in the body and is there some cells that are specialized in presenting and um, making mr1 and presenting it so we're looking at that in in mouse models at the moment and um and you know what do some previous infections do to uh, MR1 does that prevent um, MR1 presentation or not and we have found that if mice that have had a bacterial infection um, at least we've looked at now up to nine days after that and the MR1 expression in the main cells that express it is turned off almost completely and that was really unexpected because we thought that you know during an infection maybe MR1 would be turned up you know because it has a very low expression anyway. So, um, but it seems like after an infection, MI1 is turned off completely and we're not sure when it recovers yet. So that's what we're looking at. So we'd like to see if the same thing happens in humans. And, you know, so we've had some really, I've had some great questions today because it's it's, it is what we're sort of pursuing, you know, what's happening after a viral infection, um, or a, a primary bacterial infection. Does that lead to, Is the MR1 reduction, is that leading to increased secondary infections? that's possibility. So, um, without giving too much away, that's what I think is is happening.
1: That sounds really interesting. And yeah, I'm really curious to learn. (laughs) I can't wait (laughs) until Mm. you uh, learn more about that because yeah, as I said, I think it has so many implications how this um, mechanism works in like, maybe chronic disease also, although you say it's relative specific to bacterial infection, but maybe it could give us a hint how the immune system and that person in general, like if it's overreactive, basically. There
2: There were a couple of other papers as I was, I was searching that uh, talked about mate cells being reduced after, uh, COVID.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just probably the blood because that's um, it's the bloods obviously easier to get from humans, you know, relatively. Um, it's not very invasive. So that's the thing. Like I was saying, it's like a canary because the mates always seem to go down. Every single disease they seem to go down in the blood, but whether they increase somewhere else is um, often not known. But yeah, like you said before, they do increase in the lung during COVID.
5: Yeah. That's
3: always an interesting question, right? I mean,
5: there there was X quantity, now there's Y quantity. Where'd the rest go?
3: Yeah, exactly. And surprisingly, it's not that easy to say if they've died or um, proliferated or just gone somewhere else, being well, um, humans, at least. The,
2: the fact that they're expressing PD-1 suggests that apoptosis would be something to look for.
3: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, it suggests they're exhausted and maybe, yeah, maybe about to die. Yeah. So,
1: so does the training, um, you know, the training of the system also for this mid cells? Um, do they? Does it occur during development, or are they cons like? How how does it work? I'm sorry that I I don't know that, but um.
3: Is it? Yeah. I think the short answer is probably not really well known, but um, it's it's just emerging all the time, like what mate cells are doing. So there was a paper this week in immunity showing how they help repair like wounds in the skin. Um, And I sort of mentioned that before. That's been known for a little while, but they've just gone a bit further. There was a paper a few, like a month ago in uh, Nature Immunology showing that mate cells are involved in maintaining the meninges around the brain, um, which was really uh, like sort of unexpected. Um, but, um, so who knows like what they're playing in development? I, I don't think there's much that's known, but I'll give you a brief idea is that when, um, when babies are born, they have, um, like, um, there's not that many mate cells, but they, over the next few years of life, they start to expand and, become the most abundant T cells. So by the time, I think it's around the age of 30, um, which I'm, uh, past, (laughs) well past mate cells are at their peak and then they start to decline again later on. So, um, cells could certainly be playing a role, but they, I can tell you that they, they expand a lot from, um, from the, uh, from birth, um, and then sort of mature adult and they start to decline but they could be having functions in the brain. they could be having functions in development. Um, you know, this, who knows? It's, it just hasn't been looked at.
1: So does it, the thymus play a role in this or, or not at all?
3: Yes. Um, the, um, yeah. Yeah. So the thymus is where the mate cells are, um, are developed. So mate cells are sort of... Um, they get trained in the thymus, like like other T cells, and um, they leave the thymus and then um, expand more in the other in tissues. Um, but mr one is uh, presented by um, certain thymocytes. Um, they're called double positive thymocytes, and and that instructs these developing mate cells um, to become uh, mature mate cells that leave the thymus. And one of the really interesting things, actually i i think it was it was there was a paper it was two years ago in science from um, olivia lance's group in france so he's a the pioneer of mate cells early on so but he found that these metabolites that are from commensal bacteria um in young mice they actually from those um, barrier tissues like say the skin or the gut those metabolites somehow get transported to the thymus And then they get presented by MR1 and that helps develop mate cells. And that was really unexpected because it's only been most, I think most immunologists considered the thymus a bit of a closed system where all the antigens come from within the cells in order to train T cells. But this is a case of where that it's a foreign antigen being transported inside in order to um, train these mate cells. So yeah I'm not sure if that sort of answers your question.
1: Yeah that no that's really interesting because I I heard or read shortly but it was a while like a bunch of months ago that um a a, a medical researcher was trying to transplant thymus um and um it kind of trained uh, it It was not a big problem if you do it early enough during development because um, I think you she trained the thymus uh, first in a dish and then transplanted it and there was no rejection and things like that um, yeah. combined with like the immune system, you know for for cancer treatment. I thought that was really interesting, and then I thought. Uh, But the thymus training goes on really early in life, but I thought that was interesting if you could basically also manipulate the thymus in order to, I don't know, then improve if you have like, but that doesn't work in adults. Let's say you have a long-term COVID and the immune Mm -hmm. system doesn't bounce back. Regular, could you train the thymus to train? <laughs> but that's too yeah. late, right? That doesn't work anymore later on. So it was like a misconception in my head. But that's interesting. Thank you.
3: Yeah. So, I don't know. I think I'm open to other ideas. It could be, could be something to pursue.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then would it, with the, like epigenetics, that maybe get inherited? Um, kind of if, you know modulate this like could that mechanism be modulated by those mechanisms is there any hint that that would be the case
3: yeah not that i'm aware of but i mean i, understand, I can imagine i i have seen that different um human donors like that i've looked at their my one expression does vary and so we don't know why <clears throat> that could be epigenetics or it could just be yeah to do with the um the state of that person at that time it could be diet who knows but yeah it's yeah all open for I've got no idea but even just the expression of my one seems to change
1: yeah that's interesting because yeah if if it's like an early developmental thing you know that it's highly dependent on really relatively early stages in life then maybe you know kind of environmental factors Maybe there's like a a risky stage where you should be careful to, not you know um change that system basically, if uh, yeah, the epigenome yeah. would be able to modulate it.
3: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, be worth. Yeah, we need to know. I think we do need to know that. Yeah.
1: That's interesting. So is there um. Is there like a large set of genetic data you could go through to see if you know in different populations I don't hmm. know genetics or yeah I don't know methylation levels or so are are changed
3: Yeah, I'm not really aware of it. I know um I know there's been some studies on looking at just the um the gene sequences of MR1 and how it changes. It, it's very well conserved, but there is there's a few differences. Someone found that um, this is not, yes, yeah, so it's obviously not epigenetics when it when it's at like the, the nucleotide level, but some there's a couple of there's like one single nucleotide difference in some people's MR1, and what they found is that it changes the expression of MR1. Uh, they think that it changes the expression.
6: Oh, it's wow. fairly rare.
3: Yeah, it's, it doesn't change it a huge amount, but actually they found it in a cohort of Vietnamese. Um, People and they had an increased susceptibility to tuberculosis. So it does suggest that MR1, you know, is in, when mate cells are important in tuberculosis. But um, I think it was actually the mutation increase. They they thought that it increased MR1 expression. Um, I believe it was like an in silico prediction. So I'm not sure if it panned out to you know, actually they did analysis in the humans. In the people at all, but anyway, they found that increased MR1 increased the susceptibility to tuberculosis. So I'm not sure what's going on there.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I thought it would be maybe, you know, we had the our guest speaker who was a completely different context, but she um, looks for her work through data sets from hunter and gatherers um, to kind of make evolutionary um analysis basically because you know the assumption is that in hunter and gatherers that still live that lifestyle um yes. there may be some thing conserved from back in time and then the you know the diet is very different you know more active lifestyle and so on so um would be really yeah i, I would be curious how you know if it would be different there, if they would be less susceptible to bacterial infections. And so I think that would be also interesting if yeah. there would be indefinitely yeah. a month of funding.
3: Yeah, <laughs>
6: Probably. Well, I
3: think, you know, I think that the, um, the MR1 is, is, is there to sort of monitor the, the commensal, you know, commensals and the microbiome to some extent and instruct the immune response. That's what that's what my thing my thinking is um and you know in our western the western lifestyle that's been changing the microbiome significantly um uh, and so you know who knows like what mr one and mate cells were like i'd love to know um but you know there's there's um it's it's clear that like mice are very clean the mice that we use in the lab they're called specific pathogen free (SPF) mice. They don't have many pathogens. They also don't have many mate cells. Um, it's hypothesised that that's you know if you if you can if you boost the the diversity of the microbiome that maybe mate cells will increase. So maybe in humans, as we're altering our microbiome, our mate cells are not really being trained enough by the commensals. But we're not sure about that yet.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the the microbiome diversity is also declining significantly, in us, but also in our environment through you know extensive farming and, and pollution and so on. So yeah, that's that's another yeah. very interesting aspect of your work. So, um, yeah, we've been talking for like an hour and forty minutes. I wanted to, you know, give back your time
3: <laughs> because <laughs> that's alright. I probably have a <laughs> Yeah. I think um, my toddler had a bit of a tantrum before. He's uh, in, I don't know if any of you heard this, but he's a 3 at the moment. He's three years old and he's, um, <laughs> so I, I hope that he's finished now, but I might need to go and see how how uh, my wife's going.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I hope all is well. <laughs> well, no, th-
2: no. thank you for a fascinating talk
3: no worries my pleasure thanks for the great questions it's been i love being able to talk to people from you know very different backgrounds and their different thinking so thanks
4: Hi, it's Katie. I just also wanted to say thank you, Hamie. She did an amazing job um, really, you know, breaking down some very complex um, terms and everything like that, communicating very well. Um, Welcome to Clubhouse as well. I hope you come back and join us. Um, And just really, really quickly, because I'm fascinated by your research, I also went down a rabbit hole during your talk. Um, And if you do want any blood samples from people that have had COVID or have COVID. Um, to test yeah. this, you, you, please get in touch because I can get you in touch with um, different labs around Australia uh, studying this oh. sort of stuff. Um, but also if we want to follow up with your research, do you have, you mentioned a Twitter account before, like how do we follow up with you um, and follow your work? I also posted an article to, from I think your university in the chat below as well. But um, if you can share your Twitter handle, would love to follow you there
3: yeah no worries I'll put it in the chat I also put it on my slides um um so I'll just put it in quickly it's it's hmcw underscore science um that's my twitter I'll just put it on the chat so yeah I'd love anyone to get in touch on twitter and yeah while twitter's still around it seems like it's hanging on for a bit (laughs) but yeah no worry thanks so much um, so,
2: so so are 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 you planning to to go on to uh like uh science mastodon uh there are a couple of good ones
3: I would like to i, I you know it's just it' it's been in the hard basket at the moment but i I was just waiting to see what happened but um it sounds like a lot of people are moving there yeah, I haven't signed up yet but I, I need to check into that yeah
1: I need to take yeah. that out too. Thanks, yeah. Eli. <laughs> okay thank All you so much Hamish say thanks to your kids for you know making like letting us share like sharing you with oh, us no worries. and yeah. Um, yeah it was a wonderful no discussion. thank you so much.
3: No worries thanks thanks so much enjoy. for the invitation and yeah I'll, I'll see you around in clubhouse soon.
1: Yeah, yeah. and enjoy your summer. Well we suffer, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> okay. Um, no thanks everyone for coming. <laughs> and, thanks very so much. Um, yeah, and follow the club if you like discussions like this. And um the next discussion will be um with Dr. Benjamin. He was actually in the audience uh, earlier listening. And um, he will talk about naturally emerging neural codes, um, which is really interesting, uh, and really interesting neuroscience uh, topic. So yeah, I hope I hear you all back soon. And um, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day, Hamish and uh, everyone. And I'll close the room in
6: three, two, one. Bye everyone, yeah. thank you.